Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good morning. How are we? Good, good, good. Man, y'all crushed it. You like blew out the lights in here. That was great. I bet the power better explode when I'm preaching too, all right? That's, a, that's the goal here, all right? Uh, well, welcome. Glad y'all are here uh, with us this morning. Um, hey, we are continuing in Luke, all right? And so that's where we're going to be today. But before we dive in uh, to Luke sp- explicitly, I want to kind of highlight what our hopes are for the series as a whole. We talked about it a little bit last week, but one of the things that I really hope that this series produces is uh, really more anticipation of God's empowering presence, all right? That's a lot of big words there. What I mean by that is that we would really anticipate or look forward to or believe that God can move and wants to move in powerful and in beautiful and in profound ways in our own personal lives and also in the life of us as a body, us as a community, as a church. And so I want us to believe that, man, these scriptures aren't just written and, you know, about historical events that happened a long time ago, but literally God wants to move with power in our lives even today. And it may not look the exact same. It may not, uh, 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 you know, showcase itself in the same ways, but that there's the same authority of Christ that he shows in the scriptures, even in our own own hearts and even in our own lives. And so that's kind of the hope. And I think that today what we're looking at is actually a key piece to how we see God's power, his presence move in and through our lives. And Jesus is trying to highlight for us today, this is what it looks like. This is what it means. Here's how you uh, see the power of God displayed. And so um, I'm excited about it. You know, this weekend uh, on Friday, I went to go see Black Panther and that joint was fire. It was dope. Uh, But uh, in the movie, I'm sitting here thinking about all these gospel narratives, all these metaphors, and uh, I won't uh, spoil it for you for those of you who are late to the game, all right? I'm just kidding. It just came out Thursday, all right? But uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But one of the things that I was thinking is that, you know, he's a king, Black Panther. He's a a king, and uh, what happens is that uh, he, though, has all this power, all this authority. He actually becomes very accessible to his people. He becomes uh, uh, very close, very connected. They can relate with him. They can uh, connect with him. They can literally touch him even. He is there amongst his people. And as I'm sitting there and I'm watching that and I'm, I'm thinking about that, I'm like, man, this is what the gospel is, is that Jesus, the great king, right, though he could sit enthroned in a land that is far away from ours and, and distant from ours, that he would actually enter into our space and allow us to even touch him, to be there with him, that he is a good king, even that much better than what's displayed in the movie, right? The great, the eternal king. And so that's what I hope we see even in this is that King Jesus, right, the glorified, the eternal, the massive king actually comes down amongst his people and that there's all this intimacy, there's this accessibility that we have to our God, all right? So I wrote the sermon hype because I love this text. I watched a movie, got even hyper, all right? And so if I start freaking out today, that's what's going on, all right? Pray for our brother. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. Luke chapter 8 is where we'll be. Uh, And we're going to pick it off where we left off last week in verse 40. If you don't have a Bible, the usher's going to come forward now. And if you need a Bible, please just slip up your hand. Uh, They would love to give you one. If you do not own a Bible, we want you to take and keep that. That's our gift to you. So uh, please feel free to bring that home and we want you to have the Word of God. You can also follow along on the, your YouVersion app underneath the events section. Type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. You can also take this link and put it right into your browser. You can follow along that way. Uh, we say this every week. We want to be repetitive purposefully with this is that, man, we want your eyes on the word, okay? We really believe that these are the very authoritative words of God to us. And rather than even hearing them, we want you to see them and, man, be able to interact with them because we think God wants to speak to us even today, all right? 
So we don't normally do this. <clears throat> what we normally do is we kind of walk through a verse or two or three at a time and kind of chop it up. But what I want to do is I want to uh, read this story holistically in its entirety because I think that getting the big picture will help us understand really what Jesus is kind of going for here and help us to interact with him around that. So we're going to read the story as a whole and then go back through it so we get the big picture. All right. So Luke chapter 8, and we're going to pick it up in verse 40 and read this whole passage. It says this. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, uh, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to, to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, several important things to kind of note in this story as a whole. First one uh, I want to highlight is, man, just the sharp uh, compare and contrast that Luke is doing here upon this writing. If you notice it a little bit, there's a lot of parallels in this story, right? And on this chart here, you see that there's a woman in Jairus, and yet the woman was sick for 12 years. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. They both came and they both bowed at the feet of Jesus. They were both, he, she was called a daughter. Jairus had a daughter. They were desperate for healing. They touched Jesus' robe, and Jesus touched the daughter, so there's touch involved. And there's even more parallels than what we see here. For example, both the healings happen to women or uh, other parallels. The author is going out of his way to kind of over and over again show, hey, even though these are two very distinct, very different people, that the same product, the same desire of Jesus is displayed in both of them. Jesus wants us to understand and Luke, as he is penning this, wants us to realize that Jesus is after the same thing in both of these people, namely that of faith, right? Jesus wants faith for both of them. And so he who performed the miracles, he is trying to drive out the exact same thing, which we see in the parallels in this story. They have the same point is what it's showing. However, in the next slide, we see there's a ton of contrast as well. 
once again, there's a woman and there's a man. There's contrast. She's unnamed and he is named, Jairus. She's a lowly outcast and he is in a high and authoritative position. There's a public healing for the woman and a private healing for Jairus, poor, wealthy. There's no support. There's lots of support. There's even more contrast as you go throughout the story. For example, the people were mourning and then the next thing you know, they're laughing at Jesus. And there's all these different contrasts that are happening. And this is like more diverse than the marriages in our church, right? There's all this diversity here. There's all this uh, uh, display of difference, okay? What's happening? Well, Jesus and the author are once again trying to show us that even though the same outcome is what is desired, that these are happening to two very distinct, very different people, right? They are couldn't be like any different, okay? And therefore, what the author is saying is that, hey, this is for all of us. Jesus wants to produce the same thing in us, mainly faith, but that this is actually for all of us, whether you are rich or poor, male or female, high or low position, no matter where you are, Jesus interacts with them in the same way because he is trying to showcase the same thing, mainly that of faith, but this is for everyone, right? This is for the person on Wall Street and the CVS custodian, Right? This is for uh, the dean who makes a ton of money and the pastor who doesn't even really know what money is. Right? Like, like no matter where you are, right? Jesus wants us to see, man, this is for us. And so the story applies whether you're lost or lonely or broken or downtrodden or whether you have a high position or a low position, lots of friends or no friends, whether you have faith or you don't even really know who Jesus is, someone just kind of asked you to come to church and for whatever reason you came, like these stories are for all of us. Right? Jesus is trying to display, man, this is for everyone. And what happens is, is that between these two characters, they have the same thing that drives them to Jesus. And it is a realization mixed with need. Right? You're checking with that? There's a realization. They realize what we need, what we're looking for, what we hope for. We are unable to attain by ourselves. The woman has been trying for 12 years through physicians and has become poor because they cannot heal her. And you got to think Luke is a doctor writing this, so he stresses that point. Right? The physicians couldn't even do it. He, his own profession, cannot figure this out. And so there's a realization mixed with a need. I need to be healed. So that drives her to Jesus. For Jairus, it's the same thing. He realizes no matter how much position he has, no matter how much money he has, he cannot overcome that thing called death. And so he needs somebody who can do that, and that is Jesus. Both of them, they realize their need, and they come to Jesus for that need. And so the same thing drives them there, which the same thing is true for us. In fact, if I were to wager, I would bet that a lot of us, we actually came to Christ and that very uh, thing. We realized that what we were looking for, be it uh, power or wealth or, or sex or finances or position or job or relationship, that those things did not satisfy. And we realized, man, there's something in my heart that I need and I'm looking for all these other places and I cannot find them in these other places. And that need drove us to Jesus. All right, this is what uh, God usually does to operate, to get us to come into his grace. It's realization mixed with need. And they both, they have this. And so Luke does a masterful job of kind of writing this and saying, hey, this is for everyone. If you recognize that there's something wrong and you recognize that Jesus probably has the answer, then this is for you. Even if you're like, I don't really know if Jesus has the answer or not, which is just like Jairus and the woman. They both stepped out in faith, not knowing if Jesus would help or could help. And yet they both receive the blessing of God. So maybe you're even like, I don't really know if Jesus is who he says he is. But if there's some sort of, of draw, 
right, then this story is for you. It's for everyone, okay? Now, I want to go back to the story here, and I want to think about this story a little bit, right? So it starts off with Jairus coming, this high and lofty man bowing down at the feet of Jesus. That by itself is saying something because he is a high authoritative position, and in that culture to bow down before someone is kind of laying aside your power. And so here comes Jairus. He humbles himself. He bows down before Jesus, and then Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to come heal your daughter, so imagine you have a daughter, an only daughter, she's 12 years old, and uh, you call the ambulance, right? And the ambulance, they come and, and they uh, uh, drive, they show up at your house, and, and they're like, okay, yeah, I see, she's about to die, let's, let's hurry up and rush her to the hospital. So boom, they throw her in, and, and they're driving to the hospital, you know, really fast, and then all of a sudden they see somebody riding a bike, and he falls off the bike and he breaks his leg, all right? And the ambulance kind of stops, Right? And they hop out the car and they're like, oh, we, we got to fix this guy's broken leg, okay? Now listen, I don't, I don't know about you, right? But I'd be like, uh, I'm about to get real Detroit up in here, right? Take my daughter to the hospital right now, okay? Why? Because, yes, this may be a serious thing, right? Like, like a broken leg, like that, that's, that stinks, right? You don't want to have a broken leg, it hurts. But that's not as serious as death, <laughs> Right? And so Jairus here, his daughter is dying, okay? And Jesus makes a pit stop to help somebody with a broken leg. You tracking with this? Can you feel what Jairus may be feeling a little bit here? Like, uh, Lord, what's happening, right? And so Jesus stops, and you even see in these verses that he, uh, the woman retells the whole reason why she came to him in the first place. So this wasn't like a, a three-second pit stop. This was like a long pit stop, right? And I'm sure Jairus is like, uh, Jesus, hey, bro, <laughs> right? Remember my daughter? You know, we don't see what he's thinking, but you can only imagine. You're a father of an only daughter, your only child, okay? And she is dying, and here's Jesus making this stop, right? And so, well, why does he stop? Verse 44 and 45, it kind of shows us that the woman touched Jesus, and she was healed. Notice, too, her timidity there, right? Now, in this culture, she would have been considered unclean. It is unclean to touch someone who has a discharge of blood. That's why Luke even uses that phrase to trigger in us Leviticus, where it says, hey, this is an, an unclean thing to touch someone like this. And so she has to have a level of faith already to even come into the crowd in the first place because she would have been an outcast in that society. In fact, she would have lost her kind of uh, society, her, her friends circle will have been put outside of the camp of Israel, not allowed to come in. And so she spent all her money. She's tried, but now she has faith. Man, maybe Jesus can do something, right? Maybe, maybe he is the Lord who can fill what I'm needing. So the crowds are, they're pressing in there around them. Everyone is denying touching Jesus, right? And then Peter is like, there's so many people, Lord. Uh, they're all denying it. How can we know, right? Thank you, Captain Obvious, Peter, right? And so here's Peter. It's like, man, we don't really know. But Jesus is persistent. He says, no, 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 like, like someone touched me. And look at the next verses. It actually says that when she found out, when she realized that she had been outed, right, when she had been found out that she can no longer remain hidden, she came trembling before him. Now, the text just told us that there were too many people to know who touched her. And yet, all of a sudden, she realizes, hey, I've been found out, right? And so what is happening here? Well, if you were with us in our Genesis study, you actually remember that when the Lord asks a question, he's not really asking a question, right? And so if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, he makes this big, massive garden, and you can only imagine all of this space. Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they eat of the fruit, and then Adam runs and he hides himself in a bush, right? 
And on all of the massive garden, God comes and stands in front of the bush where Adam is and says, Adam, where are you? He's not asking Adam where he is, right? He's trying to draw something out of Adam. I think about when I play hide and seek with my girls, right? Like, like they are under the blankets like, <laughs> shh, shh, right? And I'm like, Micaiah, Kyria, where are you, right? I'm not asking them where they are. I know where they are, right? What am I doing? I'm engaging with them. I'm showing them that I am present with you. I am interacting with you. I am here with you. I am playing with you, okay? I am present. And so what is Jesus doing upon asking questions or God upon asking us questions? Well, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. It's that he's engaging with us. No, no, no. I am present with you. I know I am here, right? I will even come down to your level to call out to you. And so here is Jesus, right? He says, no, no, no. Somebody touched me. And I can almost imagine him, right? And this big crowd is kind of like, no, no, no. Looks at the woman. <clears throat> Someone touched me, right? <laughs> And all of a sudden, her heart starts beating hard, right? Like, oh my gosh, I've been outed. Her worst nightmare, the whole reason why she came behind him in the first place is now coming true. Why would Jesus do this to her, right? Like, like real talk, like think about it. Like, like she is a social outcast. In fact, what she just did was illegal in some ways. There's a, 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 an illegal nature of what happened here, and yet Jesus kind of outs her. He, he showcases and, and brings her to the forefront, like, like, why would he do this to her, you know? She's probably terrified, right? In fact, she falls down trembling, the text says, and, 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 and she's there, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, no, no, somebody touched me, and he makes her say who it was. It was her. Why does Jesus do that? That's an exceptional question. Thank you for asking. We're going to talk about that in a minute, okay? So he then calls this out in her, and then he keeps going. Verse 49, he says this to Jairus. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe that she will be well. So Jairus then sues for medical malpractice, right? <laughs> Jesus let this girl die while he's healing a lesser problem, okay? But once again, what is he calling Jairus to do? He's calling him to have faith, right? And in fact, if you remember uh, in the, the woman's healing here, he highlights her faith. And if you were with us last week, you saw that Jesus was on a boat with his disciples and he calmed the storms and he asked them, where is your faith? And in the next story, we see a demon-possessed man that Jesus heals and he highlights his faith. In fact, all of these stories, these four stories that are clumped together in Luke, they show us that Jesus has authority over everything that we fear. Why? Because Jesus Jesus wants to produce in us faith, right? Y'all did so much better than the 915. Don't tell them that, all right? But he wants to produce in us faith, right? They were like, oh, what, right? Okay, no, this is what the story is about, right? Jesus wants to produce faith. This is his goal. This is why these are written, okay? Jesus is concerned about faith. In fact, Jesus is willing to make people uncomfortable in order to pull out of them or place within them faith. There wasn't too many amens for that, all right? Let me say that again. Jesus is willing to make them uncomfortable in order to pull out or place within them faith. I know this is true in my life, right? Jesus is willing to make me uncomfortable in order to pull out in me or to establish in me that which I do not have, which is faith or trust that he is good. Jesus is willing to do what it takes 
And if you remember the question that Jesus asked and what we're answering throughout these stories is what we just mentioned with the disciples. He said, where is your faith? Jesus, his whole concern in all of this is this idea of faith. This is why these stories are here for us. Jesus wants us to understand, to grow in, to develop, to establish a sense of faith. He is here to produce in us this faith that is welling up inside of us. More than anything else, I would say, Jesus wants your faith more than anything else, right? So that we're on the same page, okay? What is faith? Because I think that in the Christian circle, we kind of throw that word around but not really know what it stands for or what it means, right? Faith is not a uh, blind jumping off the cliff and hoping that you fly moment, right? That's not what faith is, the way that some people portray it to be. It's not a spiritual hoping for the best, okay? It is not a, a blind trust or a, a wishful or a hopeful thinking, right? That's not what faith is. Faith is not blind or absent of any evidence. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not yet seen. There's a surety. There is evidence. There's tangibility. In fact, if you are in a court of law and they say, Hey, what is the evidence that this person did this crime? What they are saying is, We were not there. We did not see see the crime, but because there is evidence, it is obvious that this crime happened. Evidence is the strongest piece to believe, and so faith is not blind. It is actually very tangible. There's evidence. There's assurance. There's a surety there, right? This isn't a, a blind hoping for the best. In fact, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, just a couple of verses later, it's here on the screen, but it says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus is trying to draw out faith because it is pleasing to God. It is something that is glorifying to him. However, faith is also something that makes us come alive. It makes us kind of get it. We begin to be who God has created, to, uh, created us to be. There is reward in our faith, it says. We can't just believe that God exists. We actually have to believe that there is reward when we come to God. There is good in God. In fact, it is the good of God that draws us to him in the first place. So faith isn't blind. It's very evidential, right? So what is the woman doing? What is Jairus doing? Well, they believe not only is Jesus who he says he is, he is God, but I believe that he can actually do the powerful. I believe that he is good, so I'm going to come to him in hopes that there is reward in that coming. This is what God calls us to. God is for his glory and our good. Amen? Oftentimes we think about God just being for his glory, but the text is really clear. Even coming to Jesus is an expression of recognizing not only does this glorify God, does this exalt him, the very reason we were created, but there's also good found in God because God's glory is our good because as God is glorified, we see him more and more. So faith isn't blind, family, right? Like you hear me there, right? Faith is not blind. In fact, a very easy definition that we can write down if you want to remember is that faith is a conviction made active. It's conviction, it's a surety, it's, it's evidence made action, okay? Another word we might use instead of faith is the word of trust, right? Like we, we trust, we, we believe, we have faith. It's conviction made active. It's to be so assured of the evidences that you do have for God in your life that you place your trust into that and there is action involved in that faith. In fact, some of you may have seen this or heard this before, but uh, it's often uh, allegorized as that of a chair, right? If you see this chair here, 
you can look at it, and if your whole life you've been told, hey, look, that's a chair, and you look at it and you realize, yeah, that is a chair. In fact, it has kind of four legs, and you begin to examine it, and you realize, yeah, this chair probably costs about $21, which it did, right? And it's not an expensive chair. It's not too cheap, right? But here it is. We're going to uh, hold it. It's not a stool because of the height of it. Like, like, this is a chair. And if for your whole life you've been being told, chair, 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 then you begin to intellectually assent to the fact that, yes, this is a chair, However, if you never actually do what the chair has been intended for you to do, which is to rest in it, then it shows you do not trust that that is a chair, right? You do not believe that that chair exists in that way. You can assent to the fact that the chair is real, but until you actually rest in it, you are showing, I don't have faith that it's actually real. You tracking with that? And so faith or trust or conviction made active is to go in the chair and to sit down in it and know that it's not going to break under me and make a fool out of me in front of all of you all so you can laugh at me forever, right? How do I know this? How do I know that this was not going to break? Well, what happened was is throughout my life over and over and over again, I saw chairs, I recognized they were chairs, I sat in chairs, and I began to believe more in chairs, Right? This is the intent of the chair. And as I sat in it more and more, I began to be more and more convinced that this chair's purpose is exactly uh, what it was designed to do, which is to hold me up and to allow me to rest. And as I sit in 12, 15, 20 chairs a day and thousands of chairs throughout my life, I realize more and more. Now, there are times, like if you were in elementary school, where you go to sit down and somebody's like, whoop, right? And you fall. That ever happened to anyone? Yeah, okay, like the worst, right? What happens the next like four times you go to a chair? You're like, <laughs> right? Like, that's what happened. It shook your belief, right? All of a sudden, there's a scaredness. Man, is this going to fall out from under me? Is somebody behind me? But do y'all do that today? Did you do that when you came in and sat down? No, because you haven't been in elementary school for 20 years, right? Unless you have a really mean spouse. I did that to you last night, right? But like, no, like you believe more and more. Why? Because it has shown itself to be true. And this is how it is with us and God. As God realizes, we realize who God is, what his desire is as we come to him and as we rest in the grace of God, as we sit in the grace of God, we realize God is good and exactly what the scriptures say he has been designed, or that he is, he is, not even designed, that he has designed us for, as we realize how good he is and we rest in him, we grow in our trust, we grow in our faith. And then we get up and we move throughout the day, and then we go back, and the scriptures say, no, 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 God is good. Don't be anxious. If you're anxious, pray to him. He'll guard your heart and mind, and we pray to him, and we feel our heart and our mind guarded by Christ Jesus, and that's us doing this. We are trusting that God is who he says he is. It is conviction about God that is made active. It moves us into something. This is what God desires of us is faith, conviction made active, trust, right? This is pleasing to God, the text says. Why? Well, because it shows that you trust him. The very reason that he uh, exists in our life, the very reason he wants to draw us close is because, man, he says, I want you on my team. And when we say, yes, I will rest in you. I will not try to be my own God. I will lay down my life and, and rest in you, then he sees that, man, we are on team Jesus, no longer in rebellion against his kingdom, but we are working for the kingdom. We see who he has been made to be. We enter back into that relationship with him. This is pleasing to God because this is what he designed us for, was to worship him. And this is also our joy. And because God is for our joy, as we come to him, we get more joy in him the more we rest in God. Amen? 
And so this is what brings us fully alive, friends. In fact, I'll say it even this strongly, right? The more faith that I have, the more my conviction made active grows, then the more whole I become. Now listen to me, okay? My situations don't get better, but I become more whole because no longer do I need a situation to produce in me joy. Instead, I have joy dwelling inside of me. And whether my situation is hellish or whether it is heavenly, it does not matter because the Spirit of God lives inside of me and the very person I was made to be, which is a joyful person, it wells up inside of me despite my situations and I become a man full of joy. Why? Because that is how God has designed me to be. That is what he wants for me. God is for his glory and for your good. Amen? This is what God wants in us. And so no longer do I need these situations to produce in me happiness or, or security. No longer do I need people's approval, right? And, and them telling me how, how good of a person I am or, or how awesome I am. Why? Because it is no longer found in the opinion of man, but my deified king that will live forever says, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is where I find identity. This is where I find purpose. And this is where I become fully alive, And that's what he wants for you, to become fully alive, to trust, to believe, to go to him over and over and to continue to rest in the grace of God, to trust that what he says and who he is, that he is indeed good. This is glorifying to him. And you begin to be made more and more like him. The more my conviction made active comes alive, the more whole I become. Or even think about it not personally. Think about it in other things like in a a community, for example. All of a sudden, my community grows stronger and stronger. Why? Well, because before I knew who Jesus was, before I believed in who God said he was, I was a very selfish person. And I began to separate myself from those around me because I was so self-centered that I only wanted my goodness, my glorification. I needed you to lift me up. And so no longer was I living biblical. I was living selfishly, self-centeredly. However, upon believing in Jesus, and he says, no, 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 consider others more significant than yourself. Like, listen, I'm still selfish, right? But my community has begun to be more and more tighter. And as I lay myself down more and more and stop thinking about myself, but thinking about others, then all of a sudden that community begins to be restored. And I realize God is for my good, even when he's trying to kill me. Because the death of me is actually the life of Christ in me, and he begins to make me who I have been created to be. This is God's intent in your life, is to increase your trust of him because he is worthy of it. He is worthy of our trust. This is what God wants from us. Faith is pleasing to God. It shows that he is our treasure. So God wants our faith, and he knows that our faith is our good. Because we begin to be more who he made us to be. I mean, think about even in the story. Look at some of the parallels, right? The woman, as a social outcast, as, as somebody who couldn't come close to anyone, she becomes healed. And then Jesus forces her to come out. But in that coming out, what is happening to this woman? Well, man, he's actually entering her back into the societal fabric of the life. See, for the past 12 years, she's been a a social outcast, somebody who cannot draw close to God. But now all of a sudden, God heals her and then brings her out. And she says, "I, I have been healed. And in the Levitical law, that means she cannot enter back into society. So Jesus not only gave her healing and even gave her faith, but he began to restore to her that which was stolen, which is that of community. And can we be honest? Even if Jesus didn't restore that to her, 
You know that one day she would be unified with community forever upon belief in Jesus as all the angels and all the saints forever gather around the throne and we are brothers and sisters forever. And so what this physical representation is, is a truth about the spiritual reality that happens to us when we believe in Jesus. Whether we are healed of our situations or whether it is a slow, progressive healing, both ways God begins to restore in us who we have been created to be. He makes us holy, makes us come alive. He restores our community in Jairus' daughter's case, he restored her to her family, right? She was dead, now she's alive, back into the family. God is for your good, and you have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, not always with finances, not always with health, not always with wealth. That's the prosperity gospel. We detest that gospel, but with himself, <laughs> And he is good. He is for our joy. He is the one that is satisfying to our hearts. This is what God wants to give to you. And so this is what the stories are showing us. Faith brings healing. It brings wholeness. It brings community. It brings all of these things. And so what is Jesus asking in this story? Well, he's asking the same thing he asked his disciples beforehand. Do you trust me? Where's your faith? Where, where is your faith? Do you have it? And if you, if you have it, do you trust me? Is it being made active, right? Are, are you walking out in the conviction of this faith? In these stories, this is what Jesus is trying to draw out for his glory and for their joy. And here's kind of the heart, the, the thrust that we can take away from the story as a whole today. It's that Jesus will always give us more than what we can ask for, but always ask of us more than we think we can give. Jesus will always give you more than what you ask for, but he'll always ask of you more than what you think you can give. Think about the woman, right? She thought that she would just get a healing, and instead she got called a daughter of God. Do you know that's the only time in all of the scriptures that a woman is called a daughter of God? So she went from being an unnamed woman to a woman that is a daughter of the Most High, <laughs> She went from being lowly to the most exalted position. See, she thought she would just get healing, and instead she got entered into the very family of God, a daughter of God. She got so much more than what she asked for. But Jesus asked of her more than what she thought she could give. She thought she had to just sneak up and touch. And instead Jesus said, no, 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 you need to make a public profession. Why did Jesus do that? Because he was mean? No, because he was drawing out faith in her. He was making her give more than what she thought she could give, and this was making her come alive. Maybe it increased boldness in her. Maybe it allowed her the, the chance to enter back into that community circle. Whatever it is, that was for her good, but she didn't think she could give it, and then God drew it out of her. Not much more with Jairus, right, and, and his daughter. He, he thought that he would get a healing, but instead he got a resurrection. That's pretty dope, <laughs> all right? But he thought he would only have to ask the teacher, and instead Jesus said, I'm gonna need you to trust me, ma'am right, as his daughter is dead, okay? This is what God does to us. He will always give you more than what you ask for, but he's always gonna ask of you more than you think you can give. On Friday morning, we meet with some guys and uh, uh, we, we're going through a study together and Kirk Richards, who uh, is the owner of a coffee uh, 
truck here. In fact, if you're on campus, it's Square Peg Coffee. It's like uh, right in front of the Catholic Center next to Adobe. Go support a brother, all right, because it's way better coffee than Starbucks, all right? Amen. So uh, he is there, right? And, and man, it's been a really hard season for me. He has four kids and about to have his fifth kid, and there's all these financial troubles that happen. And what he said was is that what he realized he was doing with God is he was kind of drawing a line in the sand, and he was saying, God, if you cross this line, then you are no longer who you say that you are. You said you would take care of us, God. You said that you would never leave us or forsake us. And I feel like you're leaving me, God. Like, like what is happening here, right? And, and God and his grace and his goodness kind of smiles and says, okay, and then grabs Kirk and his family by the hand and he steps across it, you know, looks back at them and then pulls them across and he's still God. And so then Kirk draws a line again and God says, okay, and steps across it and pulls his family and he's still God. See, we think of the goodness, and sometimes we forget of the hardship in the midst of it. Jairus' daughter died. That feels like a line that can't be crossed, right? The woman was, had to be public with this. this. She was terrified, and Jesus made her cross that line, but we see that this activated their faith. It made their conviction that much more solid. And so Jesus is willing to make you uncomfortable if it means more faith. Because he knows that that faith is where your good lies. That that faith is where you become alive. That despite your situations or circumstances, that if you can believe despite everything, that this is when you become whole. And so Jesus is for your good. And you have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. This is the truth of what this text, he will always give us more than what we ask for, but always ask of us more than we think that we could give And here's how we know this to be true to the fullest extent, even of the story. You see it happening throughout the story as a whole, but this idea of touch is mentioned in it over and over again, right? The woman touched Jesus' garment, then Jesus went and touched the hand of the daughter. What's happening here? Well, the ironic thing is that Leviticus tells us that if you touch somebody that is bleeding, then you yourself become unclean. And that if you touch a dead person, then assuredly you become unclean. See, Luke chapter 7, Jesus already spoke a miracle and it happened. So he didn't have to touch these people. But instead, he allowed the woman to touch him and he went and touched the little girl. Why? Because he was trying to show us something that is even far deeper than the truth that we could see here. That two years later, Jesus would go on a cross and that Jesus would actually hang up on a cross. And the scripture says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus would go and literally take on our sin, becoming fully unclean, becoming sin itself, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. Jesus would become unclean so that you who are unclean may be cleansed forever and be able to enter back in with God. Jesus, like the little girl, would die so that you who should be dead in your sin may now be alive in Christ. Jesus was literally showing this by by touching the girl. I will become unclean if it means her cleanliness. I will become dead if it means her healing. This is how we know that Jesus, that God is for our good, that he is for our joy, that it is a reward to come to God. Because all of a sudden, you who should be unclean forever, who can enter the holy hill of God, we read last week, those with a clean hand, pure heart, none of our hands are clean. But Jesus, if we come close to him, he, he touches our hands. He says, no, no, you are clean. And he becomes unclean for our sake. This is the truth of the gospel. When we believe this, when we believe that Jesus assumes our sin and gives us his righteousness, then we become clean. We become like the woman and the daughter of this story. We become alive in Christ. 
This is the joy of the gospel. And so, see, some of us, we are like the woman. We're afraid to come to Jesus, maybe. We feel too much shame or guilt. We feel like what we've done isn't good enough for God. And so we feel like if we're even going to get close, we've got to sneak through the crowds and, and kind of touch out and hope that nobody realizes. And this story tells us that's just not true. God invites you to come. He is willing to assume your shame and to give you life forever. This is what he shows the woman. Some of us are like Jairus. We maybe have a high position. We don't feel like we need Christ that much. And yet God, and the reward to Jairus, actually his reward was his humility. He realized his need. He made Jairus lower, and that was actually Jairus' life. And so for some of us, Jesus will tell us to lay down our pride, to say, we've got this, we can do this on our own. And Jesus says, you need to realize that you are dead in your sins, and until you come to me, that's the only way I can make you alive in Christ. Jesus is good to both of them. And so if you are timid or scared because of your shame or if you are high and lofty because of your position, neither of those need be barriers to come to Christ. Realize you need him and come to him. And then as you come to him, friends, let him start working that faith out in you, that trust in you, that conviction made active because God will always give you more than what you ask for. But he's always gonna ask of you more than you think you can give. Is he that worth it to you? Do you trust him? Where's your faith? Do you believe that he is good? I pray that we will be a church that trusts God despite our situations, despite our circumstances, because he is a good, good king. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, when I think about texts like this, it's so... uh, What's the application? Okay, so now what? Believe. (laughs) That's what you say, God. Believe. Believe in me. Trust that I am good. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to believe that you are good, to trust that you are good, God. Stir it up within us. Well it within us, Jesus. Where we lack in still faith, Christ, help us to see that you are who you say that you are. Help us to sit in that chair of your grace over and over and over again. God, for those of us who do not know you, I pray that we would take that first step today to say, man, I don't know if Jesus is going to heal me. I don't know what's happening, but I am choosing to place my faith in Christ, to surrender my life over to him, to enter into relationship with God. And friend, if that is you, you can come into the presence of God today. He has made you clean if you just believe, if you just reach out and touch for those of us who have reached out and touched and we have seen the Lord is good, God, I pray you would well it up within us, more faith, more conviction that you are who you say you are, and that we would walk in that truth. We pray this in your very beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.